Building a Path to Neptune, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey recommendations for the next 10 years of exploration will be released on April 19th. An enormous amount of work will have gone into this report, including the preparation of an ambitious concept study titled Neptune Odyssey, a mission to the Neptune-Triton system. Though it may sound like one, it's not a mission proposal. Project engineer Brenda Clyde and project scientist Kirby Runyon will join me in moments to explain and to help us understand why they and their international team hope the Decadal will prioritize a trip like the one they describe. We'll also check on the night sky with Bruce Betts. The chief scientist has some cool random space facts to share, along with another great prize for the new space trivia contest. Yuri's Night is almost here. If you're hearing this episode soon after its release, you still have time to join the party. Make that parties. The Planetary Society is once again a sponsor of the worldwide celebration of humans reaching space. Yuri's Night is a living expression of something Society CEO Bill Nye likes to say. Space brings us together. Check the map at yurisnight.net to see if there's a gathering near you and to get tickets. I look forward to talking with many of the great guests who will be under Space Shuttle Endeavor at Los Angeles' California Science Center on the evening of Saturday, April 9th. A lot of my Planetary Society colleagues will also be there. That's yurisnight.net for the L.A. and all the other parties. Does that Pluto image that tops the April 1 edition of the downlink look a little duller than some? It's not an April Fool's joke. It's Pluto without the false color enhancements that reveal more about this world. I don't think it's any less spectacular. You'll find it at planetary.org downlink. Along with these headlines, the Hubble Space Telescope has detected the light of a star, a single star, that radiated outward more than 13 billion years ago. That makes it the farthest and oldest individual star ever seen. Don't count out the European Space Agency's ExoMars mission just yet. ESA says it will consider other partners after it lost its ride on a Russian booster. The Rosalind Franklin rover will go into safe storage at a corporate site in Italy while the search continues. We heard a quick overview of NASA's new budget request last week when Casey Dreyer stopped by. Casey, Brendan Curry, and I will go much deeper in the April Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio. Watch for it in your podcast feed on Friday, April 8th. Brenda Clyde and Kirby Runyon have a lot in common. They both work for the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, where both contributed to the New Horizons mission and many other projects. Brenda is part of the principal professional staff at APL, while Kirby is a senior research scientist. If you stay till the end of my conversation with them, you'll learn that Kirby also has had a long, long relationship with a certain podcast and public radio series about space exploration. They joined me online a couple of days ago. 
Brenda and Kirby, welcome to Planetary Radio. I am so glad that you are here to talk to us, not just about this concept study that you uh, helped to lead, but about this whole process, which is going to uh, reach sort of a climax in just a few days as people are hearing this. Welcome, first of all. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here, Matt. Thanks for having us. So I was hoping that the uh, Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey covering the next 10 years of NASA work in space would be released before our conversation. But we learned last week that it's not going to become public until I think the date is April 19th. There are a lot of hopes and maybe even careers writing on this this big influential release, aren't there? Yes, I believe that's true. Yeah. What is a planetary decadal mission concept study, which is what you have uh, submitted uh, with this concept called Neptune Odyssey. The decadal studies come out roughly every 10 years. They're not (laughs) quite perfectly on the decadal. And what they are is they're a place where NASA reaches out to the community to find out what the community thinks is important for planetary studies, astrobiology studies going forward to give NASA guidance on where it should invest its money and plan for the future to, to get the best science return. And we have talked about decadal studies. Uh, I mean, we just had the astrophysics uh, decadal released uh, not too many weeks ago. These really are, I mean, I use the word influential. That's right, isn't it, Kirby? Yeah, these are absolutely influential. Um, I mean, I think Casey Dreyer has probably been on, you know, on the on the space policy version of this podcast talking about how that's sort of the guidebook or maybe like the Bible for NASA for the next 10 years. Not that NASA is legally obligated to follow it, but it is certainly the decadal surveys really uh, get the will of the people in the community and are very influential at the level of the National Academies of Sciences and also very influential in Congress. And so these really have a very strong effect in guiding what kinds of missions get flown, what kinds of research get funded, really at the top level, uh, and then how that uh, trickles down into, into individual research grants, individual groups of scientists might want to lead. And it's, it's a very influential uh, document, really guiding exploration of the solar system for the next 10 years. I read that there were 11 concept studies selected for development. This was back in 2019. So this is Not something you've just spent a few weeks working on since uh, your project is one of these. I found nine of the resulting papers in the Planetary Science Journal, and we will put up a link to that because they're all open access. People can take a look at them. Um, We'll put that on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. Quite a variety there. Two each for Ceres and Mars, a Pluto orbiter, a Mercury lander, a lunar geophysical network, the orbilander concept, which, which is an orbiter and a lander for Enceladus, which is something that's been mentioned in, in at least a, one previous uh, episode of our show. And then there's this study that you two are part of, Neptune Odyssey. How did this get started? When did you become in, involved in it? Brenda, I'll go to you first. Uh, well, whenever NASA does the decadals, they try to pair... Uh, concepts with what they call design labs. Uh, APL is one of their design labs that they use. So they reached out to us. We actually did more than just the uh, Neptune Odyssey. We had uh, two other decadal studies that we worked on at the same time. Hmm. Um, And then we put together a team of scientists and engineers to, to go through and develop a 
sort of what we call a point design that allows us to prove that a mission is possible and that it reasonably closes to achieve the science that uh, the community is interested in. Kirby, how did you get involved? Back in 2018 or 2019, NASA put out a a solicitation for proposals to propose to do a a mission concept study. And the PI, the principal investigator for this report, Dr. Abby Reimer, put in a proposal with with quite a number of us on the team, not just at APL, but really around the country from different institutions. And fortunately, um, our concept study was selected for uh, funding from from NASA to uh, look into what it would take to send an orbiter to the Neptune system. I uh, have a background working on New Horizons during the Pluto and Arakoth flybys. Um, and I work very closely with Abby, uh, becoming the project scientist, kind of this interface a little bit between the science and the engineering teams, uh, working with Abby and Brenda on this project. And so, you know, we were selected uh, end of 2019, going into 2020, and we started doing things in person. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And so the, the vast majority of the study uh, got done from our, our bedrooms and dens with, with pets roaming around. <laughs> Such is life, right, in this part of the 21st century. I, and by the way, Abby, who was un- unable to join us today, I, I'm told that she's still putting in some some time at NASA headquarters right now. Yep. We you know, send our regards to her, and she was thrilled to uh, know that the two of you would be uh, joining us on the show today. We've heard from so many guests who want to see a mission to one or both of our, our solar neighborhoods, uh, ice giants. And that's exactly, of course, what is uh, written about here in this study. It bears repeating. Why is it so important that we return to one or both of these worlds, Uranus and Neptune, that have only been visited really once ever by, by spacecraft? And that was, of course, by Voyager. Yeah, that's right. And you kind of you kind of hit the nail on the head right there, Matt. It's because we've only visited each of these planets, Uranus and Neptune, once, and it was just with a flyby. And Voyager 2 is a for its time especially is a very capable spacecraft and the science we got at Uranus and Neptune is revolutionary. But the science you can get with just a quick flyby is not certainly not the level you can get if you hang out in the neighborhood for a long time and do multiple orbits and, and image things from different perspectives and fly through different parts of the magnetic field and maybe even observe some small seasonal changes while you are while you spend time looking for changes on the surfaces of, of Triton or the moons or in the atmosphere or changes in the rings. You know, that would be exciting to see as well. We've had an orbiter at a dwarf planet at Ceres. That's already happened. And so really the ice giants are the last category of planet that has never had an orbiter. Our exploration of the solar system is far from complete until we are able to kind of get the type of data that you can only get from an orbiter mission. And I'll also add that many, many of the exoplanets that we're discovering around other stars uh, tend to be in this Uranus to Neptune mass regime. By understanding ice giant planets in our own solar system, we can use them as analogs or analogous to the uh, similarly massed exoplanets around other stars and then really have a better, more broad general understanding of, of planets in general, uh, understanding planetary systems, not just as they are in our own solar system, but understanding planets in general around the, the galaxy and cosmos. That's such an important point and one that has been made several times uh, on planetary radio. You already indicated that this is much broader than studying the planet itself. We've got those thin rings that are worthy of exploration, a whole bunch of moons, but one in particular that you haven't mentioned yet, Triton, right? 
That's right. Triton is one of my favorite places in the solar system. It is a captured dwarf planet from the Kuiper Belt. It is the only large moon in the solar system that orbits its primary planet backwards with regards to the primary planet's rotation direction. That combined with its eccentric orbit is a dead ringer that it did not form with Neptune, that it was captured into orbit at some point uh, in, in the solar system's past. It, in some ways, is like a big sister to Pluto. It's twice as massive, but it's just a little bit larger. It's roughly the same distance from the sun as Pluto, about 30 astronomical units or about 3 billion miles, 5 uh, billion kilometers. We think its surface composition is the same. Uh, Voyager did not have an imaging spectrometer on board, so we, we don't have as good of compositional information on the surface of Triton that we do uh, from New Horizons at Pluto. But from Earth-based spectroscopy, you know, we've got nitrogen, methane, carbon monoxide, water uh, on the surface of Triton. And the way the geology manifests on Triton, even though it's at the same distance from the sun, roughly, as Pluto, and we think made out of the same things, the way the geology manifests is very different from Pluto. And it's, an, it's its own exotic little planet uh, orbiting a giant planet that's, that's worthy of study. And um, as a planetary geologist personally, who uses images of other planetary surfaces to do his science, I'm really excited just thinking about uh, further exploration of Triton. So it's a nice opportunity to study a Kuiper Belt object without having to go as far as New Horizons did that other very, well, one of many successful missions to come out of APL. That's right. Yeah. Um, actually, it, it, it is traveling about as far. Uh, uh, Neptune ah. <laughs> and at the time of the New Horizons flyby of Pluto, Pluto and Neptune are roughly the same distance from the sun. So we got to go the same distance as New Horizons went, basically. Um, but we have to slow down to go into orbit uh, with a much larger and more capable spacecraft, not to take away from New Horizons, but it is a small little spacecraft. And, and our uh, mission concept spacecraft is, is quite a bit beefier. I want to pick up on that exact point. This is a flagship mission, the one that you have developed this concept for. And we also have to explore what we mean by a concept study a little bit further and make sure people understand this is not a mission proposal. This is not going to NASA and say, hey, give us several billion dollars to, to build this flagship uh, mission. When I look at what you've come up with, uh, Brenda, you and the engineering team and the scientists you've been working with, it's very impressive. And I think I see some heritage there because it looks like, well, I'll let you say if I'm right about that, but I, I do see some resemblance to very successful missions of the past, maybe one in particular. Um, is this just an example of form following function? It does have some similarities to, to previous missions, but this uh, was designed quite a bit differently to try to take advantage of some certainly some differences in power because NASA is working on refining its uh, nuclear uh, power systems um, and we were hoping to actually use the the, the next gen uh, RTGs but timing of that and when we would want to to fly a mission like this may or may not work out that you would be able to do that. So a lot of what was done here was really constrained by a couple of things. It was constrained by power. The real thing we were trying to get was lift mass such that we weren't constrained on our launch windows. So we mm. really worked hard to find a mission design that would allow us to use a launch vehicle that we have today without having to be constrained with planetary flybys and very limited launch windows for doing that. So so we've come up with kind of a unique 
uh, mission design capability, and then we worked to refine the mass on the spacecraft to be able to make it fit, right? So that was, the, the, those were the launch window constraint as well as having sufficient power when we, when we wanted to do the tour were our two big driving constraints. The answer to this next question may be obvious, but flagships, of course, easily the most expensive class of planetary science missions, always well over a billion dollars. Why was it important in this case, and this is for either of you, to have a flagship that has just this wonderful collection of instruments attached to it, uh, rather than a smaller, less expensive New Frontiers or Discovery mission like, well, New Horizons? One aspect of that is because we really wanted to do science for all, right? If you're going to do a flagship mission or a mission to these to the outer planets and to the ice giants, this is a long mission. You're talking multiple decades of work. So you're going to have a multi-generational team. The science and stuff is going to be dynamic and changing. And so doing a flagship offers you a lot more to be able to do that over the long periods of time that we're talking about and and in a changing environment. Brenda, you, you really said something key there, that this is a mission for everybody. And our science team was very multidisciplinary. I'll, I'll speak for the planetary geologists first, but you know we had the imagers and imaging spectrometers on board to really study Triton and the other moons, especially Proteus. Proteus is a prominent small moon of Neptune. But we had atmospheric scientists. Uh, Kunio Sayanagi down in Virginia kind of led the effort on a lot of the atmospheric science for studying Neptune, studying the deep interior. I mean, this, this concept has an atmospheric probe that would detach from the orbiter and enter into Neptune's atmosphere on the way in. We also had planetary scientists who study planetary rings. Neptune has these enigmatic ring arcs that they don't seem to be complete rings around the planet. We'd like to understand what's going on with that. And we also had space physicists to study Neptune's very strange off-center, my grandma would say squeegeed magnetic field (laughs) Uh, around the planet, studying also, you know, how Neptune's magnetic field and atmosphere interact with the solar wind. There are ultraviolet auroras, ultraviolet northern and southern lights around Neptune. We'd like to understand how the dynamo inside Neptune works, how its magnetosphere works. So it's, it's not just Triton or the planet, it's really the whole Neptune system, the entire space environment from where Neptune's uh, magnetic field first encounters the solar wind, depending on how the orbit around uh, Neptune works from the spacecraft, we could fly down the tail a little bit maybe of the magnetosphere and look at turbulent eddies in the magnetic field and the plasma environment, which I know nothing about because uh, I'm, a, I'm just a planetary geologist. And um, <laughs> But you're a fan. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Um, yeah, I, I, all, all the space physics I know I picked up on the street. And um, so it's really a broad multidisciplinary mission. And that's kind of why it has to be flagship is because it's hard to get to Neptune. It takes a really long time to get to Neptune. So you want to do as much as you can while you're there. I was so pleased when I saw the website for uh, this study, um, Neptune Odyssey. And first of all, it's a beautiful website and you have a terrific animation. And again, we'll put a link to that on this week's show page, planetary.org slash radio. I want to give a call out to Mike Yakovlev who made that beautiful animation, Mike Yakovlev in our comms department at APL. Good, kudos there. Well, well well-deserved. It really is beautiful. Um, One of the things that I love seeing though, really warmed my heart because Margaret Kivelson, the pioneering astrophysicist, 
uh, was our guest on the show just two weeks uh, before this. And uh, when I saw that long boom with a magnetometer out there, I knew Margaret would have to be pleased uh, when she saw this, uh, this study. You really are in very good company. I mean, you talked about the team that's been put together. It's kind of a who's who of planetary science. And, and to a large degree, these other fields that you've, you've talked about with, uh, with the two of you and Abby up, up there leading the way, I suppose. But it must be a point of pride to have so many terrific people, many of whom have been guests on this show. It's certainly humbling to be around so many smart and accomplished people. And you mentioned Margaret and that magnetometer boom. One of the reasons we want to fly that is not just to study the magnetic field around Neptune, but also to study the induced or any intrinsic magnetic field around Triton. Because yeah. we, we have a lot of reason to believe that Triton is an ocean world with a subterranean liquid water ocean that is probably habitable. That's not the same thing as being inhabited, but I believe that Margaret was instrumental in, in discovering that induced field around Europa, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. This is where uh, the astrobiology and the habitability comes in of understanding Triton as a potentially habitable ocean world. And indeed, not just Triton, but Triton as somewhat of an analog for other Kuiper Belt dwarf planets, the most common type of planet in the solar system. A lot of these small little planets probably could have started off being at least somewhat habitable in the first half billion to billion years of the solar system's history. And so um, understanding this interaction between ice, water and rock three plus billion miles from the sun is, is really important and really exciting. I'll be right back with Brenda Clyde and Kirby Runyon after we hear a few words from the boss. Greetings all, Bill Nye here. Missions of discovery are underway right now thanks to the Planetary Society, the world's largest independent space advocacy organization. And now is the time to join our space advocacy network to keep NASA's planetary science going strong. Help us fight for missions that matter. First, visit planetary.org slash take action to make your donations. Right now, your gift will be doubled thanks to a generous member. U.S. residents can also sign the petition asking your representatives to support space science and exploration. With your backing, we'll keep advocating for space. Please go to planetary.org slash take action today. Thank you. So I've mentioned the website and some other stuff, but there is the complete study which is also available for, for folks to read, and we'll link to that as well. Brenda, as this was being put together from the engineering standpoint, is it going to require big new technologies or approaches? Or is this, because the comparisons to Cassini, I think, are obvious. It seems like such a similar mission in, in many ways. Does the success of that mission, did that basically prepare you for this? There are some interesting things that... Uh, that we leverage like the probe for instance is very much leveraged from Cassini. We learned a lot from the Cassini probe, but there will be some different challenges entering into the system with Neptune. We have solutions that we believe will work, but they're going to require further study. The big the big thing that is going to probably be an improvement over Cassini is going to be the power, right? We will have mm -hmm. a lot more power for a longer period of time. The other thing that was a particular challenge and it was somewhat different than what Cassini was doing, the mission design for the orbit and the tour between Triton and Neptune. Trying to manage the launch of the probe as you're going in and getting captured into orbit, working the orbits to, to get far enough into the atmosphere to be able to take the necessary measurements um, and to make sure that you're getting the correct signs from both Neptune and Triton. 
that was probably the most challenging piece of this and the place where where new approaches to things had to be done. The other place in the early part of the mission design coming out, we, we do some interesting things to give us the opportunity to lift a little bit more mass with a, with a standard vehicle in terms of being able to open up those launch windows and being able to, to, to launch pretty much any time rather than being limited to very, very narrow windows. You mentioned the the orbital insertion and, and delivering the probe, and and there's that's a really exciting time slash terrifying time in in, in the <laughs> in the mission concept because after a 16 year long cruise from Earth to Neptune, with you know we don't even need gravity assist along the way, we can go straight there. Um, all of a sudden, you have to thread this needle, as, as I recall, between the rings and the planet drop off the probe, the probe has to enter the atmosphere, take its measurements, broadcast back to the orbiter before the orbiter has even burned its engine to slow down to go into orbit. The orbiter has to receive the radio signal from the probe before the probe gets destroyed, stored on board. The probe then gets down to a certain altitude where the orbiter has gone below the horizon and also then gets crushed by Neptune's atmosphere. And then the uh, orbiter has to burn its engine, go into a very long capture orbit that's many months long, and then broadcast the information back to Earth. And then we use Triton to shape the whole orbital tour around Neptune in a very similar way, at least you know on paper, to how Cassini used Titan's gravity to shape its orbit around Saturn. So it is a very complicated, not just orbital dance, but getting all the spacecraft systems to work at the right time while we're collecting science. You still want to take this on after all that, Brenda? <laughs> of course. I love a good challenge. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And when you talk about a direct route, what are we talking about as a vehicle? What are you proposing if there's a mission like this that is actually funded someday? Are we talking Falcon Heavy? or, or we, We've got two choices. You could do an SLS Block 2 or you could do a Falcon Heavy. With the SLS Block 2, we would use a Centaur upper stage to give us some, some extra kick. Whether or not we'd be able to use a, we, we would still need an extra kick if we used a Falcon Heavy, but it would be a little bit different because the two systems are not necessarily compatible. They're, they're fueled a little bit differently and stuff. Oh. So, but either way, we would be able to do a direct to Neptune. When the study was commissioned, the goal was to try to get there in 20 years. We're right at the edge of that. We get there right around 20 years doing the direct the way we want to do it. In order to get a little bit of extra mass, we there are a couple of uh, places where we optimize the mission design to, to be able to carry a little bit more fuel and things. Like I said, it's a point design that should close, but there's probably still a lot that can be done to optimize it and make it better. Right now, the spacecraft design as it is, is about 3,800 kilograms. So that's how much wow. lift we would need. Wet. That's wet. Wet, in, in other words, fully loaded with all its yep. propellant and other yep. consumables. Yeah. I, at least you have these choices of vehicles that were not available to previous missions like uh, like Cassini, and you can take full advantage of them. And I'll mention with the uh, strong capability with the SLS or the uh, Falcon Heavy, without having to do a Jupiter gravity assist, that frees us up to launch any year. Uh, you don't have to literally wait for the planets to align to do this mission. So this is a, this is a fly anytime mission uh, concept. Which is great. You already mentioned... This will obviously, for over the time span that you're talking about, be a multi-generational mission. I mean, once you get there, let's all hope that a mission like this, if it happens, uh, will have the kind of lifetime that uh, Cassini enjoyed at Saturn. 
you're both in good shape. You might be here around through uh, through the end of something like this, but but really, this is something that you address in the in the concept study as well. That at some point, a lot of this work is going to have to be handed on to another generation. Princeton sociologist uh, Janet Vertessi was on the team. So we're planetary scientists. She is a scientist who studies planetary scientists uh, and, and understands the teaming in that and and even, even how people use their bodies to refer to different components of the spacecraft. They anthropomorphize the space robots, if you will. We have planned obsolescence in terms of the people in this team. I mean, there are certain you can kind of create a culture uh, with traditions and um, ceremonies even of, of passing knowledge of having certain staffed positions on the mission that are only for X number of years. And everybody has an understudy under them, learning with them as they go along. The Voyager missions have been lasting for over 45 years. And some of the science team, some of the team members are the original team members. And, and that's fine. Um, this mission, you know, Voyager accidentally lasted this long. This mission is designed to last pushing 30 years or so. Very long-lived mission. And so you you cannot assume uh, that everyone is necessarily going to be around at a later point in the mission. And, and you need that continuity of corporate knowledge. And a lot of this stuff is tacit knowledge. It's experience. It's, it's remembering the hallway conversation, stuff you can't capture even in like a Slack thread. It's nah. the culture. It's 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 how you handle your team meetings. It's uh, giving a voice to early career scientists and having a culture where maybe at a team meeting, this is something that Janet has done for another mission concept we've done, Interstellar Probe, where you know in a workshop you say, okay, anyone within the first five or ten years of their career, you're the only ones allowed to ask questions right now, and that way it forces the more senior scientists to to give a chance to the younger crowd and to embolden the early career people to to become to be able to grow into being leaders. I, I will say this, even though you said I'm in good shape, I would be 88 when it got there if it launched in 2030 as we proposed. So I won't be in that good a shape then. <laughs> yeah, well, join the club. I, 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 But I wonder, does this, everything that Kirby just said about the science side, mainly the science side, do you see this on the, the engineering side as, as well? I mean, you must have newbie engineers out there not long out of school who are pretty thrilled that they might be carrying this torch. Yeah, we do. The, the interesting thing on the engineering side that we struggle with a lot of times, too, is getting people, you know, these long duration missions, it's very hard for them to get a cradle to grave view of the engineering that goes mm. into it. So we like to mix for our engineering staff. We like to put them on these long, big missions, but we also like to put them on smaller, quicker turn missions where they can see the entire lifespan of the engineering. Because I, I was an engineer on the New Horizons mission before it launched. So I got to see all of the engineering. Plus, I was able to still be around when it got to Pluto, right? But there were a lot of engineers that didn't get to, to, to see that. They worked on the, on the engineering part, saw it launch, and then have either moved on or, or, or passed, passed on. So it, it's an interesting thing because we, some of the engineers tend to want to see cradle to grave. And these kinds of missions are hard to do that. They only get to see certain aspects of it. Of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We got to get through this decadal release, first of right. all. And every one of the proposals that I mentioned, the nine that I was able to find, every one of these deserves its uh, time <laughs> in the sun, shall we say. Um, uh, but let's say that we come out, uh, it comes out on April 19th. 
And it does say that uh, up near the top, or maybe the top priority, is a mission that could look like Neptune Odyssey. Then what? What comes next? Will APL pursue this? APL may very well pursue it. One of the things that we've learned over the years with the Decadals, too, is something that's proposed in the Decadal often will morph and become other types of missions. What you may see is a scaled back version of this that gets put in as New Frontiers or a Discovery class mission. There are a lot of options for where this might end up going. Um, You may also see this stretched out and not done as part of this decadal, but maybe started under this decadal and then continued under the next there. It's really up for NASA to decide at what level they would want to do a mission like this. And then as well, how they might, might approach it or even combine it with other, with other opportunities. Kirby, if you want to be in planetary science, it really helps to be able to play the long game, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of an impatient person by nature. And uh, ironically, I chose a career path that forces patience. Um, That's the only way to do it. I'm dying to see what the other hemisphere of Triton looks like that Voyager never got to image. I'd love to know more. I'd love some other (laughs) pictures of Neptune than just what Voyager got back in 1989. I really want to explore the planets and see, see what's out there. And this is the only way to do it. Folks, I wish you great luck, at least in terms of the influence that this study may have on the Decadal. I would wish the same to any of those other teams. But, you know, as I've said many times, uh, we have talked to a lot of people on this show who want to see a mission to the ice giants. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those. So thank you so much for uh, taking us through this study. I hope that there is good news for, for you folks and the entire team when that Decadal comes out in um, less than two weeks as people hear this. Thank you for having us. Kirby, I I gotta ask you one more question and it's loaded. (laughs) (laughs) When did you first become affiliated with this show or at least at the listener level? I think I go back close to the beginning of this show. I was in high school or early college. Were you guys doing this in 2003, 2004? We had just started. We got our start in late 2002 and that's when I think I started hearing from you. Yeah, that's around the same time. So I've been listening to this show uh, all that time. It's quite an honor to be on here, Matt. And I remember when you and I got to meet for the first time, I was a little bit of a fanboy, to be honest. (laughs) I I had some business at Caltech in 2013. And uh, I remember you and I met up at Planetary Society headquarters. Yeah, this is kind of my go-to podcast to listen to. So it's fun to be on the other end of the mic right now. Um, But with the Planetary Society, I I got started in the late 90s when I was uh, helping to advocate as a middle schooler for New Horizons. And I I sent in a $15 check to the Planetary Society and I called my congressman uh, and and said that the New Horizons mission just had to go forward. It's too important not to. Now I'm working on on New Horizons itself. And I was there for the Pluto flyby. So uh, it's been an incredible uh, planetary journey. And I hope there's a lot more uh, exploration still to go. You know, here I was fishing for just a selfish little compliment, and you delivered so much uh, with that little <laughs> speech there. Thank you so much, Kirby. And, and I am just delighted that uh, uh, we have been crossing paths for so many years. And, and now I'm the fanboy for people like the two of you and your team and everybody out there who is doing the work that we dedicate this show to. Brenda, not required to uh, have been a 20, almost 20 year listener to Planetary Radio, but again, delightful talking to you as well. And thanks for all your great work. Appreciate it, thank you. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. The Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society is here with us. 
That is Dr. Bruce Betts. Welcome. We have from Keith Landa, <laughs> he looked it up. Gilligan's Island episode, season two, episode four. Smile, you're on Mars camera. <laughs> Tells you what happened in the episode. I'd forgotten some of the details, like the professor tried to make a glue out of tree sap to glue the lens for the probe back together. <laughs> Hilarity ensues. <laughs> it's, it's truly one of the most realistic depictions of a space probe that's ever been committed to the small screen or the large screen. Uh, we talked about that last week, by the way, for those who might be wondering why we started with Gilligan's Island. <laughs> How dare you miss our discussion of the Gilligan's Island last week? How dare you week? not well, remember I'm, glad... I'm sure no one missed it. <laughs> I am glad you're here for our discussion this week, beginning with what's up in the night sky. All right. There in the pre-dawn sky, you got those three planets hanging out low in the east. You got super bright Venus. And then uh, to its upper right, you'll see reddish Mars and yellowish Saturn, which is now passing Mars and heading farther to the upper right. Mars varies a lot in brightness, but right now it's about the same brightness as Saturn, making for a neat view. Of course, Venus is just ridiculously bright and it's kind of obnoxious, but that's another story. Oh, I wanted to mention one other thing, this solar activity. I don't mention the sun very often because I always have to then say, hey, don't look at the sun or you'll fry your eyes out. Don't look at the sun with just sunglasses or anything other than appropriate solar filters. But if you look at the sun with a telescope these days, with an appropriate solar filter, you'll be seeing sunspots more and more as we go deeper into this new solar cycle. The big telescope I have, I don't have a sun filter for it. I, I may have to drag out the smaller telescope that has a, a big uh, solar filter I can put over the, uh, the lens. And uh, now I'm intrigued. I may need to do this. We move on to this week in space history. It was this week in 1961, the Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. 1970, Apollo 13 was launched. They came back. They were safe. 2001, Matt, Mars Odyssey launched. Mars Odyssey is still working. Odyssey around Mars. Let us go on to random space uh, fact. Random space fact. 19 and a half years. Don't start forgetting now. <laughs> I'll try not to. This is a simple one, but I think it's good to be reminded occasionally, especially as we find more of these things, that the solar system's planets, just the planets, not counting asteroids or dwarf planets, just the planets have more than 200 moons, mm. 207 and counting, depending on details of what you consider a moon. Hardly seems fair that we only have one, but then, you know, there's Venus to make us feel better. <laughs> <laughs> Venus, you got no moon. No moons, ha <laughs> ha. And we got the coolest moon. It's the moon. We go on to the trivia contest. The question I asked you, as opposed to the question I meant to ask you, was what was the first ESA European Space Agency mission to use ion propulsion? A valid and intriguing question of which we got great answers. And I learned things from our listeners. Well, there was a cavalcade of errors here. I made an error when I listed the question on the entry page at uh, planetary.org. All I said was, what was the first European space agency to use ion or electric propulsion? <laughs> well, it was 
the European <laughs> Space Agency, as Bruce pointed out a few minutes ago. It turns out, I mean, what answer were you looking for? Uh, what I meant to say was beyond the Earth, and I was thinking it was smart one. And anyway, what I asked was the first ESA mission to use ion propulsion. And hey, I learned stuff. Thank you, listeners. Devin O'Rourke, he's a longtime listener, first time winner, as far as I could tell. Devin is in Colorado. He said, Eureka! Eureka! E-U-R-E-C-A, which is short for European Retrievable Carrier. I brought this up with Bruce, and you looked it up, and looks like this is correct, right? It does seem to be correct. It actually beat the other entries that you may discuss by many years. In 1992 was the launch, 93. Fascinating mission. There are a whole bunch of experiments were loaded onto this sort of bus, and it was delivered by a space shuttle and then brought back down to Earth, right? By a different space shuttle after being exposed to the space environment for over a year. And then they saw what happened. They had a lot of experiments on board. It was huge, as you say, a bus is used in the technical term, but it was about the mass of a bus, 5,000 kilograms, so a thousand times more massive than our light sail 2 spacecraft. A random space fact of interest. I was going to say, a nice little extra random space fact bonus there. Devin, congratulations. You you not only got it right, you taught us something. And for your trouble, we're going to send you that Planetary Society Your Place in Space t-shirt from Chop Shop. And you can take a look at it and all the other great Planetary Society merch at uh, Chop Shop Store. Dot com. About those other answers, there was a second spacecraft that ESA put up there in Earth orbit, not outside of Earth orbit, called Artemis, a telecom satellite. And that inspired Gene Lewin in Washington to create this poem. Certain types of energy drinks are said to give you wings, but wings within the depths of space are really not a thing. To elevate to distant heights, you're going to need thrust. And if on launch you just fall short, the mission could be bust. But when you pack an ion engine not intended for a boost, you just may reach the altitude where you first were meant to roost. So ESA in 2001 employed a nifty trick and placed Artemis electrically. The problem thus was licked. (laughs) Impressive. And here from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, is uh, one that honors smart one, the one that we all thought was going to be the correct answer. So if you want it well done and you know you are a smart one, then the answer to the trivia is very plain to see. Once the Ariane was flying, there could be no more denying that the xenon in the thruster was an ion strategy. ESA launched it up to Luna, though it got there not as sooner as it would if a rocket of the normal type had flown. Then it curved from the ecliptic into paralune elliptic, and the mission proved the concept that Smart One could fly alone. <laughs> Suna. I love it. That was my favorite, though it got there not as Suna. <laughs> I th- Wait, isn't that a person from Oklahoma? <laughs> Suna? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm on fire with my humor today. Thank you, everybody, uh, for uh, providing these great answers for us. We're going to give you another opportunity right now. Back to moons of planets. If you alphabetize the named moons of planets in our solar system, what moon 
is last. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Oh, and it's the English alphabet we're using. Ah, good point. You have until April 13. That would be 8 a.m. on Wednesday, April 13, to get us this answer. And here is that Chop Shop uh, prize package. It is the Planetary Society's very own Kick Asteroid. It's a whole set of stuff. An 18 by 24 screen print, a pin, and four Kick Asteroid stickers. As far as I'm concerned, it'd be worth it for the beautiful poster alone that is about a $45 value. It's just marvelous. So uh, get out there and uh, kick some asteroid with us, and, uh, and we wish you good luck. That's a really cool package. I love those things. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about the next bird you tweet. What is it saying to you? Thank you, and good night. Is that you? Yes. <laughs> it's a hidden talent. That's Bruce, who's actually tweeting at us right there. If you want to catch his tweets elsewhere, it's at Random Space Fact, right? Yes, it is. Just like I'm at Plan Rad, although I don't tweet nearly as often or well as the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its ice giant loving members. You can become as cool and blue as them when you visit planetary.org slash join. Marco Verda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. <laughs>